0: And thank you for joining me at 9394, a music podcast with Travis Roy. I am delighted to have back my dear friend and fellow podcast host for my other podcast, Cinema 9, a movie podcast I've been doing for years. This is not Eric's first time on the show. You can listen to him talk about Weezer's Blue Album, and on that episode, we talk about how we have known each other since we were like, I don't know, 12 or 13 or somewhere around there. He's a dear friend, and it was a true pleasure to talk about this musician, Johnny Cash, who means so much to him, so much to me. This album, American Recordings, that also means so much to us both. But let's be honest, Johnny Cash is a titan in American culture and somehow still underappreciated, so it was fun to do this with him. Check it out.
1: The beast in me Is caged by frail and fragile bars Restless by day and by night Rants and rages at the stars beast in me. Hello, Travis.
0: Hey. All right. Here we are. Yeah, yeah, we're doing it again. Good to see you. Thanks for coming aboard again. Coffee and cash. I'm ready to go. Cool. Should we get started? Yeah, let's do
1: this. And how to shelter from the rain. And in the twinkling of an eye might have to be restrained God help the beast in me
0: All right, Eric. Well, you know, last time you were on the show, we already talked about how you and I know one another, so I'm not going to ask you that again. I'll ask you something else. You like to cook very much. What is the last meal you made that you're proud of?
2: I made a beautiful and delicious beef vindaloo. One of my favorite things to cook is uh, Indian food. Okay. Much to the detriment of my wife, because the entire house smells like fucking Rajarani for like three weeks after I'm done cooking one meal. You just cannot get the smell out of your house. I enjoy it. I would like candles that smell like Indian food, but yeah, it was so good. So much butter, like an entire tub of butter, <laughs> but the meat was so tender, and I'm real proud of myself. She hated right. it, but I ate most of it.
0: <laughs> Will Fawn eat it? Can she eat that kind of stuff yet?
2: No, no. Too spicy. So I just nah. sat there and ate an entire gigantic skillet of beef and loo myself <laughs> while wow, I stunk up the house, but I was happy.
0: <laughs> the rest of the family, maybe not so much, but you were, and that's good.
2: That's very true. <laughs>
0: Great. I don't cook anything. I make eggs. So that's, that's my story.
1: God help the beast in me. The beast in
0: me. All right. So how did you get into This album, because we're here, of course, to talk about the resurgence of Johnny Cash in 1993 with American recordings and his teaming up with oh fuck, I'm blanking on the dude's name, (laughs) the Mystic Rick Rubin. Yes, Rick Rubin. Yes. So, how did you get into this album? Do you remember?
2: Yeah, it's it's lofty because like Cash was like it's something you kind of know about before you even know who he is. It's just always kind of playing in the house if you grow up in like Southeast Michigan, like I did, with the working class dad who just. As it's on the radio. And Cash is just kind of there in the background all the time growing up, but I don't really recognize who I'm dealing with until these recordings start coming out from uh, his collaboration with Rick Rubin. I got into American Three, The Solitary Man first. Oh. I don't know who gave it to me, how it ended up in my hands, but I had this CD that I just played over and over and over again while working in this fucking boring ass office. And I went back to the earlier stuff after that, but like I loved three so much that I just kept playing it. Maybe I was broke too, so I couldn't afford to go back to volume one and uh, Unchained, <laughs> but uh that was it. And so I just kind of became this casual, you know, legacy cash fan and into this new supporter of his in the late 90s and early 2000s. That's
0: awesome. I think it was sort of similar. I mean, my family is working class, I think, sort of, yes. Uh, more clerical work. But still, Mm -hmm. um, definitely not a wealthy family. But we did not listen to Johnny Cash. Even though my mom was a country fan, I I did Mm. not hear Johnny Cash in the house. Now, I knew who Mm. he was the same way I knew who Elvis was or Buddy Holly or something like that. You know, I heard the name and I was familiar with some of his stuff. But then this album came out and there was a video for Delia's Gone, which was the first single. And they played that shit on Alternative Nation in 120 (laughs) minutes like it was a goddamn alternative track. Yeah, yeah. And I was taken away, you know, I was like, what is this?
1: Delia, oh, Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. I went up to Memphis, and I met Delia there. I found her in her parlor And I tied her to her chair It was so basic and fresh to me that it could
0: just be a dude in a guitar. It seems so basic, but it was new to me at 13. (laughs) And I got into this album, and shortly after this, I got into The Mountain Goats' Zappalode Machine, and between the two of these albums, I was like, Learning guitar around the time. So I was like, well, shit, I could just like record and write songs just me and a guitar, and that's enough. And so I got really prolific with my songwriting in my early teens, and it was in part because of this album.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. I do remember this video popping up before I like really immersed myself because like the discography is one such that like if you're going to get wet, you really got to go swimming with this. It's like Leonard Cohen or it's like weights. Like there's just so much. like, And until you're ready to like step your toe into that, it can get a little bit tricky but to see like this like dude like in his late 50s singing what essentially sounds almost like grunge if not like dark rock mm. was very uh, <laughs> very strange and the story behind that is super interesting once we start getting into the individual tracks here especially with Delia is gone like Nobody wanted to give this airplay. Like, they were surprised that anyone even wanted to make a video of this because (laughs) CMT just like turned him down and like wouldn't play his stuff. And MTV's like, fuck, we'll play it. And it just pairs perfectly with a lot of these like stuff Soundgarden's doing and the stuff that like Depeche Mode is doing. It's like seamless. Like, us young kids like shrug our shoulders and like, all right, this is fucking cool without batting an eye. And we're talking about somebody who's been recording for almost 40 years at that point.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I can only assume that that was intentional. that the four different musical acts that you name dropped there, two of them were on, you know, he covered them on this album and the other two he covered on other albums. He covered Depeche Mode, he covered Soundgarden, and there's a That's right. Tom Waits song and a Leonard Cohen song on this album. But yeah, I agree. To start with Delia's Gone, it is so dark. It's a murder ballad. It's a straight-up murder <laughs> yeah. ballad from back in the day. It's a true story <laughs> about some poor 14-year-old girl who was murdered by her, like, 15-year-old boyfriend back in, like, 1900 or 1902 in that region, and listening to it at the time when I was young, I was like, yeah, this is cool. This is dark. The video is all black and white. Mm-hmm. It's all very, you know, iconic. But listen mm. to it now. I'm just like, Jesus, this is rough, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is a rough tune. Yeah. And also, I have kind of a weird connotation with it, too, because I was listening to that song when I was in my first car accident. I was rear-ended at about 50 miles per hour, and mm. uh, that was the song playing. So it's not like a traumatic memory exactly, but it's certainly um, connected deeply to it.
2: Kind of like Cash being this grim specter tapping you on the shoulder saying, <laughs> Not now, but soon.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. The man in black, so to speak.
2: Yeah. I love the track. The thing that's so cool for me about it, especially looking back and the history of it and how it came about is Cash relishes in the story. Like it's it's about a man that's not really sorry for what he's done at all. Like in fact, he's happy for murdering this person. For them to put this out in 93, 94 in a time where country is just so fucking full of this polished honky-tonk horse shit is intense. Now, I'm sure we'll start talking about the accolades that this guy got on him for these tracks, but like... (laughs) not by the country community man like the country community that raised him and solidify him as one of the great like folk country artists turned their back completely on this album he gets no nominations from country music awards and it got so bad that like him and rick rubin are putting out ads in the paper like literally flicking off the country music industry in nashville (laughs) in general for dismissing this resurrected style of folk and country so yeah it's classic track
0: yeah. And I do believe that he's literally haunted by Delia by the end of the track, talking about he hears the patter of her footsteps all around his bed at night. But it's jarring, I think, in <laughs> the time period that we're in, the glee and the unapologetic nature of the murder. But yeah, going to your point about it just not being celebrated. When I got into this album... I ended up getting into all of Johnny cash stuff. I got like a box set Mm -hmm. of his cassettes, like stuff going back to the Mm fifties and whatever, like his earliest stuff, you know, and a lot of that stuff, the earliest stuff, Hey Porter and five foot high Mm -hmm. rising and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff is great. Really great. And then he gets into like, you know, the cocaine ostrich years. And um, there's like, (laughs) there's like a lot of like big band (laughs) and like brass and stuff happening with it. It's like, Mm It's nigh unlistenable to me, like yeah. it's just not good. And that's kind of where he sort of, you know, pittered out and started doing like, he had like his own TV show and that kind of stuff. And he just kind of like, you know, it just kind of disappeared into the ether. And then Rick Rubin <laughs> comes along with these ideas of just, let's strip it down. Let's just record the master, the legend with his guitar and how this could be embraced by the alternative and like rock community and dismissed by the country community, it is baffling. It is baffling, but I'm grateful for it because it opened up a whole new door of fandom and it created a whole new avenue for him to go down in terms of the different styles of songs that he'd be willing to cover in the later American recordings.
2: Yeah, and a lot of that is kind of the, you know, I won't say charlatanism of Rick Rubin, but I'll I'll probably definitely say the marketing prowess of Rick Rubin because a lot of this is kind of him prodding cash to record against, you know, his instincts, some of this modern stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And when we talk about where he is in this year, it's so important, man. And it tells us a lot about the country music industry. I hate to keep going back to it, but like, I think it's one of the huge reasons why people embrace him. He's always been kind of anti establishment while at the same time supporting just about every person that's been stripped down of their rights and basic American freedoms. Like, that of Ira Hayes, one of the all time probably top three folk song of all time but he's a victim of the country machine so when he's doing this fucking television show and he's playing fucking dinner theaters in branson missouri's and he's yeah. signed a contract in the early 90s to make cash country right next to fucking dollywood he knows he's just a slave to the industry and he's not doing what he wants to so rick rubin appears at the perfect time to say let's play songs just for you and you only and that's exactly what cash needs to hear at the time so you got a man in his fucking living room just playing songs that he's enjoyed his entire life without having to pay anybody off so i think that's where we get a lot of this grit and honesty
0: you know you kind of started that talking about the songs or i guess maybe i did we both did about the songs that he would come to cover in later American recordings. You don't really get that so much on this album. You have Bird on a Wire, which is a straightforward Mm. Leonard Cohen cover, which I was familiar with Leonard Cohen Mm -hmm. and I was familiar with the film, the Mel Gibson film, Bird on a Wire. (laughs) But that, is like one of the few obvious covers from this you know like half of the cowboys prayer is a cover and then there's a yeah. few covers on here but they're not ones that we know tennessee stud they're not covers that i would mm-hmm. know you know um and, <laughs> yeah. and then you have this interesting thing where people like tom waits and luna wainwright iii and nick lowe and glenn danzig are like giving him songs which mm-hmm. you know he went on to like cover a bunch of stuff but i kind of wish that there had been more of that 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 had continued where songwriters were giving him songs and being like here take this and do
2: what you will with it it was an interesting way to go about it Mm. yeah i agree so i didn't remember there being so many tracks i figured this would be one of these like in and out eight nine ten tracks but i think this is what 13 14 tracks on here and for a dude just with his guitar and his kind of voice that's on his way out it's a lot it's a lot i had to break up the sittings
0: yeah i said 93 earlier this was 94 my bad
2: but it's a short album.
0: I mean it's 40 minutes. I guess that's okay. Is it? Yeah, but the songs themselves are fairly short, right? Like there's not mm-hmm, a song yeah. on here I think that's more than three minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: I think uh the Wade's cover is the only one that's around five minutes. Everything else is okay. like two and a half minutes, like yeah. oh pray. Sorry I killed that guy and now I'm out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So it definitely feels not rushed, but it leaves you wanting more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you choose your favorite song from this album?
2: yeah for me it's easy and i was happy when i kind of looked in the liner notes here that it was a cash original because i was worried that it would just be a cover and i'd be celebrating a different songwriter more so than cash's contribution to this stage of his life but it's mm-hmm. drive on for sure for me
0: mine too
1: Well, I got a friend named Whiskey Sam. He was my boonie rat buddy for a year and now. He said, I think my country got a little off track. Took him 25 years to welcome me back. But it's better than not coming back at all. Many a good man I saw fall. And even now, every time I dream, I hear the men and the monkeys in the jungle scream. Drive on. It don't mean nothing. My children love me, but they don't understand. And I got a woman who knows her man. Drive on. It don't mean nothing. It don't mean nothing. Drive on.
2: Yeah. I mean, it just clips along at this beautiful speed. It retains that kind of Sun Records feel that I love from him the, you know, the boom, chicka boom, chicka boom. But it also kind of cooks along with that kind of modern edge, man. I love it. It's fucking awesome.
0: You know, he's always been able to embody these downtrodden people, like you were mentioning earlier. He actually has very little experience in. Now, he was in the armed forces. He was in mm-hmm. the Air Force. Mm-hmm. He voluntarily signed up during the Korean War, but he served in yep. Germany. And he was like, a, mm-hmm. he did Morse code stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I had to like do the math remember, at one point as a kid and be like, oh, wait, no, he wasn't in Nam. He would have been too old for Nam. He wasn't there. Yeah. But I totally yeah. spent years thinking that this was like a true story. And of course it's not, but he <laughs> makes it so it feels very
1: lived in. It was a slow walk in a sad rain and nobody tried to be John Wayne. I came home, but Tex did not. And I can't talk about the hit he got. But I got a little limp now when I walk and I got a little tremolo when I talk. But my letter read from Whiskey Sam, you're a walking, talking miracle from Vietnam. Drive on.
2: It's got a great message i mean teenagers in the 90s aren't jamming out to songs about vietnam soldiers returning from war and their children not understanding their torture at a time where ptsd wasn't an acronym that was founded yet so that being said the song still moves and it's got an energy mixed with that pathos that makes it easily my favorite track off this album
0: there's that pathos but there's also like this kind of like who gives a fuck don't mean nothing mm-hmm. drive on you yeah. know there's yeah. like this yeah. uh, perseverance behind it and a lightness to yeah. it which is kind of weird but in a good way absolutely yeah it's great yeah it's an awesome song i did choose it as my favorite this go around i really thought that my favorite was going to be like a soldier um, Mm -hmm. which is also a really beautiful song but yeah drive on there's something to it (laughs) now what kind of memories do you have tied to this album is there anything else specifically in your life that this brings to your mind
2: you and i are huge as good as it gets fans Mm -hmm. and one of my favorite scenes out of that is the fact that Melvin has special CDs for special occasions, you know, for mm-hmm. emergency use only to pep <laughs> things up. Yep. This is definitely my, you know, drive home from a party while trying to stay awake and, and make it home safely type of record. So oh, really? when I used to get kind of wrapped up in my own thoughts and a little bit down on myself and it was late at night and there was nothing but the role before me i would always throw in stuff from uh american recordings and obviously stuff from murder ballads and (laughs) and stuff like that so yeah i mean for me this isn't something i could jam out with a lot of friends it just puts me into a weird but good place
0: (laughs) yeah it's funny you'd say that because When I started the podcast, I'm like, oh, this is definitely one of those albums I want to talk about. And I was grateful that you wanted to talk about, too, because part of me was like, well, everyone will want to talk about this album. But then I realized, like, I never really talked to any of my friends about this album specifically. I know that a lot of our friends are Johnny Cash fans, but not necessarily this album. What about a underrated track? Is there an underrated track that you were able to pinpoint?
2: That's tricky. Again, like the majority of these are such personal songs to cash that he kind of wanted to unearth and record on his own for me to be like, (laughs) critical of these choices is tricky. But again, this is a, a hymn book put together mostly by Rick Rubin, who's trying to sell albums. Yeah. So as far as the underrated track goes, I put
1: 13 on there. Bad luck wind been blowing at my back. I was born to bring trouble to wherever I'm at Got the number 13 tattooed on my neck When the ink starts to itch then the black will turn to red I was born in the soul of misery Never had me a name, they just gave me the number when I was young. I think it got accused
2: a lot of being kind of a a gimmick. Because of Rick Rubin's relationship with that artist. But I fucking immeasurably love Glenn Danzig, unironically, and I've always liked this track.
0: Yeah, it's one of the ones that really grabbed me when I was fourteen. Um, not as much as I got older, but you want to talk about darkness. It is yeah. clearly the yeah. darkest song on the album. It's almost got this post-apocalyptic feel to it. Mm-hmm. And it blends in well with the tons of religious imagery, Christian imagery on this album, which you wouldn't have necessarily expected that from Glenn Danzig. And it's not like a Christian Mm -hmm. song by any means, but maybe because the person that's coming out of, but it's like the other side Mm -hmm. of Cash's Christianity.
2: And I think it's just the right amount of overall apathetic disdain. I Fuck it. I was born in the soul of misery, so my life is going to be miserable, but I'm going to do my best. I
1: was born in the soul of misery Never had me a name They just gave me the number When I was young They just gave me the number
2: and I was young and you're right because it's coming out of an older man who's dealt with his demons long ago yeah it's listenable and it's not just Drek for the sake of miserable Drek <laughs>
0: <laughs> for my underrated. I actually went the opposite route. I think I went with maybe the lightest song on the album or one of the lightest Mm -hmm. songs. The last song, The Man Who Couldn't Cry by Luden Wainwright III. I don't know if there's an original version of this or if this was written specifically for Mr. Cash, but I didn't attach to that song necessarily. But listening to it recently, I got a lot more joy out of it and I got a lot more humor out of it.
1: There once was a man and he couldn't cry. Hadn't cried for years and for years. Napalm babies, movie love stories, for instance, could not produce tears. As a child, he had cried as all children will. Then at some point, His tear ducts all ran dry, grew to be a man, it all hit the fan, things got bad, but he couldn't cry.
0: It's just a weird kind of fun little simple, it's like a short story. It almost feels like uh, something that T.S. Garp would have written or something. um, Mm -hmm. Not that fictional characters write a lot of books, but you know what I mean? (laughs) It's wry and it's funny. But the only thing I do have a problem with on it, and I have the same problem with Tennessee Stud, is that live audience, man. I'm sure they were so grateful to be there, but shut the fuck up. Shh.
2: It's fucking jarring, it's silly, it's artificial, it's recorded at the Viper rooms, so you know, there was like fucking like some early 90s celebs that just showed up like a high out of their minds that didn't even <laughs> give a fuck. I fucking hate that stuff. If they could re-release this and just get that off the track, I would be totally happy with that. But yeah, man, like Luden Wainwright used to play in my house as a kid, Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road, all these silly, long ass, goofy ass songs. I don't know, man. I gotta be honest with you. I put this as my least favorite track. Yeah. Not only because of that goofy live audience, but because like I said, like by the time this album's done, I'm getting my composition book out and i'm penning the next great american novel and then i got this goofy ass track kind of just taking me out of it and waking <laughs> me up and pouring that bucket of ice cold water on my head so yeah i don't know i can appreciate it i mean it does bring up once again the overarching theme in this album about the beast cage caged within and you got to yeah. do something about that fucking beast but it's a little too goofy for me bro
0: well, I think that's partly why it was my underrated, because growing up, it was probably my least favorite on the album. But now I have a lot more appreciation for the levity, mm-hmm. and I appreciate the cold glass of water getting dumped on my head to kind of bring me out of the morose <laughs> feeling that the rest of the album leaves you mm-hmm. with. I think it's perfectly placed, but I do get your point, especially since knowing you, you are someone that does like to dwell in the dark places. Sure. And going on with the crowd thing, in Tennessee Stud, when he says that he came back to the golden haired girl and she's riding a Tennessee mare. I want to find the guy that goes, I just want to just shake <laughs> some sense into him. I don't want to, want to hurt him. I just want to like, be like what's wrong
2: with you? No. Like, it's not no. about you.
0: It's not a fucking, you know that they're recording. This isn't about you. <laughs> Shut up.
2: So <laughs> just to maim, just a maim. <laughs> Not to hurt. Again, I could totally see Rick Rubin in his fucking dark glasses pointing at a guy and trying to get him to do exactly that noise. And it's the only time we get an appendage to Johnny Cash here, which is tricky. Now, he brought in Flea and Chad Smith as session musicians for almost all of these tracks, and he tossed it, which was interesting for me.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
2: He just thought it was not working, but he did toy with that idea. And again, like we don't have to get into the other albums in this series, but when Unchained comes out, it definitely felt right then so if I were to critique the album as a whole I'd say I could have used a little bit more accompaniment on a lot of these tracks and I'd be interested to see what those two especially did here
0: I'd be curious to hear a version with them on it for sure. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful that this is stripped down and just them um, is Unchained the one where Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are the backup band yeah. or is that the third album?
2: Yeah, it's the second one.
0: Yeah, that album is so fucking good. It's amazing. And it does sound good with a full band. And mm-hmm. I went a long time not realizing that was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But that one's <laughs> actually probably my... Well, either this one or that one is my favorite of the American Recordings series. But I like this Love one, it. I think, the most because of that. It's just him. It's just the simple beauty and talent of not to overuse this word, but there's the simplicity to it. There's nothing Mm -hmm. overwrought here. It's just Mm -hmm. a a beautiful voice, beautiful words, and simple guitar playing. So I I really appreciate that.
2: I think he kind of earned the right to bring on those session musicians later. Like we can't forget this. He's with Columbia records since 1955 And country's in such a fucking stupid place in the 80s That he gets fired off his label Talking about one of the great pantheons of of country music And Columbia Records says Well, you're selling 50,000 units these days And we gotta make room for George Strait and Clint Black And this honky-tonk horse shit So he gets fired Mm. And that pisses him the fuck off So I think for him to come out Strip down on that first album To let everyone know who they're fucking dealing with Was the right call And then you kind of bring the music in And let everyone celebrate
0: yeah that's a good way of putting it i do have to say my least favorite song on this album uh i had to pick redemption
1: from the hands it came down from the side it came down from the feet it came down and ran to the ground between heaven and hell a teardrop fell in the deep crimson dew the tree of life grew And the blood gave life To the branches of the tree And the blood was the price That set the captives free It's a little sludgy It's a little
0: uh, murky It's real grim there's so much (laughs) christian stuff going on this album that works really really well for me like i said like a soldier is one of my favorite songs on the album and it's clearly about a guy who you know is reconnected with the lord and with a good woman and the change that that has put into his life but redemption is just so fucking. it's just like oh god like it almost feels like a chore in the album Compared to the rest of the songs That are, are a delight to listen to And it's always been I think my least favorite But it's still great I mean it's still an awesome song Which is one of the funny things About talking about an album That you love And trying to choose The least favorite Like yes This is a significantly better song Than almost anybody's ever written But And yet And yet On this album It is I think The low point for me
2: Yeah I mean am I jumping into my car And throwing on Just why me lord On my way to the grocery store <laughs> no, but again, like I love the idea of this artist reveling in these dark places. And there's such a huge amount of like atonement in these songs that you could feel coming through the speakers. And it's almost like communion yeah. when you join him on some of these tracks. But yeah, there's a lot of kneeling on the pews. Mm-hmm. that for me gets a bit exhausting, but it's not unappreciated.
0: Yeah. As a non-Christian, I can't necessarily relate to it, but I do find it refreshing that someone could release this kind of music in that era and have it be a true reflection of who he is as a human being. And he mm-hmm. can still have his faith and pair nicely with that darkness and grimy grittiness that he also brings. There you go. Yeah. So obviously, um, neither of us ever saw this dude live no
2: man it's a damn shame didn't happen
0: no didn't happen
2: but he's playing glass and and fucking south by southwest at a time where we could have gotten ourselves out there it just didn't happen
0: yeah i'm not going to glass and berry at 15 or whatever it seems unlikely it would have been awesome <laughs> it would have been fun but yeah whenever the question comes up like you know which act for a long time, the person I would say, if I could see any dead musician live, it would have been him. And yep. now it'd be a tough call between him and David Bowie and Tom Petty, to be honest. But dang man, yeah, it would have been great to see him live for sure. But I think that's another reason I kind of love this album is that it feels, well, there are some live songs on the album, but they just feel like the rest of the album just with some dude screaming in between the <laughs> <quiet bits. laughs> yep. mm-hmm. So it, it kind of has a live feel. It almost feels like you're not at a live show, but you're, you know,
2: yeah, sitting in someone's living room and listening to this. Yeah. You could be sitting beside him and he grabs a guitar up from behind a lazy boy and entertains for an audience of one.
0: <laughs> That's exactly how it feels like. Exactly. What track do you want to use to wrap up our episode
2: with? Well, now. This was a tricky one. Uh, the obvious ones, Delia's gone. But I got to say, man, I've got so much love for Bird on a Wire that I think it'll pair nicely here. And that chorus. I mean, Leonard Cohen's another one, man. Once you crack open that discography, it's done. You might as well call to work for the next few days. <laughs> just so beautiful. And it's the perfect pairing, as far as I'm concerned, because he's not making it redundant what Leonard mm-hmm. Cohen did. He's just expressing that same you know, musical opinion in a beautiful way. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's gorgeous. There's a few things that made me a Leonard Cohen fan pretty early. And this was one of them, for Mm -hmm. sure. Knowing the song and then... Because it was like the only song from the album that I knew before I heard the album. And to hear his version of it, I was like, oh, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head. These two guys are musically spiritual brothers, I
2: think. And we're running out, man. We are definitely running out. It's sad. After Cohen, we're scraping the barrel here on these aging troubadours. Yeah, there's only so many
0: uh, legends left, you know, Springsteen, Dylan, There's some still floating around out there, but they are becoming fewer and farther between. Willie Nelson, of course.
1: With the twilight colors falling and the evening laying shadows, hidden memories come stealing from my mind and i feel my own heart beating out the simple joy of living I mean,
2: we're still seeing the residue of what Rick Rubin did, especially Anton Corbin. He's the guy that directed Delia's Gone, and he's (laughs) this legendary photographer who's done all your favorite photos of all these artists for the album covers. And just thinking of the cover for this all the way up to American Six, we've got this like Matthew Brady daguerreotypes of just (laughs) someone you need to listen to because he's so wise and he's earned everything that he's about to pass along.
1: I'm like a soldier getting over the war. I'm like a young man getting over his crazy days. Like a bandit getting over his lawless ways. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm like a soldier getting over the war.
2: You just get so much out of 40 minutes of A
1: Dude With a Guitar. There's
2: songs about forgiveness and acceptance and repentance and causality and everything you can imagine very neatly produced. I trash Rick Rubin a little bit because I do have some side issues with him, but he really dragged this guy out of a commercial mire, and I appreciate him for that.
0: And saved Deaf American, because this mm-hmm. is the first album when they changed from Deaf to American recordings. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> he tried to do the same thing with Neil Diamond. Did you ever listen to the neil diamond stuff
2: i was excited about it because i love neil diamond in <laughs> it, didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it didn't
0: work it just didn't work it's funny the formula was the exact same but just didn't work not the same it way. didn't work yeah. sorry neil sorry like your stuff neil but you know john cash yeah. johnny cash was truly legendary and somehow still underrated in american or even global pop culture and i do think that this album kicked off the winter years that made him remembered i think if this stuff had not come out the american recordings he would be as far back in our generation's mind as conway twitty and that kind of stuff but maybe don't spend a lot of time listening to it, which i like conway twitty i love conway twitty but i don't feel like our generation is, like you and I, I think are outliers on the conway thing because i don't think our generation generally is onto him the way that they are mm. with johnny cash
2: mm. yeah i mean waylon jennings i wish could have gotten a hold of rick rubin because he's actually my all-time favorite country musician that would have been a great team up that would have been fucking amazing yeah that would have been incredible there you go
0: what else you listening to these days anything that you want to share
2: oh my god dude yeah i don't even want to pull something out of my ass dude i'm just i'm all over the place if it's good i'll keep it on if it sucks it goes off a lot of light rock like i said still a lot of delilah a lot of 80s light rock Jess has been getting me into Genesis for the past few years. And that's, yeah, yeah, still a lot of
0: Genesis. (laughs) Great. Great. Then we will move on to the final question of our episode, which is where I often will bring in things that are specifically 90s or directly related to the album at hand, or sometimes directly related to the person at hand, which is what I'm doing with you today. Eric, you and I will be seeing each other soon. Can you tell the people as discreetly as you can about the event that we'll be seeing each other at in a couple of weeks?
2: A couple of weeks, we're going to have the annual Feast of Kings. It's a a wonderful weekend of merriment between the brethren. 20 guys get together. You know, we eat chips and drink pop and play video games. It's all very tidy, (laughs) clean, and wholesome. Mm. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. So, based on that pack of lies, do you not Mm -hmm. want to get into this subject on the air? No, no, bring it. I'm fine. That was a joke. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) I mean, in some ways, we are getting closer to that as we get older. We're less filthy as we used to be. We drink (laughs) a little bit less than we used to be. There's less other random drugs than the usual that there used to be.
2: Haven't had to patch a lot of walls in the past five years.
0: Right, right. We haven't had to do that or pay for anything broken. But yeah, we tend to get a little rowdy at the Feast. We've been doing this since 2001, I want to say. Yeah. So my question for you is pretty broad. Let's just rehash. What are some of your favorite Feast memories?
2: Oh my God. Talk about sin and redemption. And I think uh, this (laughs) definitely (laughs) pairs well with the album. Because for me, the Feast is kind of, it sounds silly, but it's kind of a way for me to purge a lot of the Mm -hmm. stuff I've been dealing with and bottled up for you know the past year since it happened. It's very freeing. It's liberating. And you can be yourself there. Where a lot of times in this world, at this age, with the career I have, I just cannot be myself. (laughs) But I always can with these guys that I grew up with. Oh, Travis, you want to start and kind of maybe uh, unearth some memories for me? Sure. Yeah.
0: And to your point, Eric and I are both teachers Mm -hmm. and Eric, you teach younger children. I teach high school kids, but for both of us, I feel the same way that I'm still grounded in myself and who I am in part because of having these lifelong connections with people like you, but having this yearly event where we just rent a different house once a year and spend about two or three days together, just getting loaded and having laughs and doing dumb shit. It's like a recentering. It mm-hmm. kind of reminds me who I am, who I was. And yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. You get to be freely, fully yourself and not worry about anyone. Not that I'm, I mean, it's not like we're running around like, hey, I'm going to go murder a bunch of chickens or know <laughs> some crazy shit. <laughs> yeah. It's not like we got some wild fucking impulse that we're trying to satisfy or that we're saying just like a bunch of terrible things. It's not like that, but like we could just be as dumb and as fucking ridiculous as we ever yep. want to be.
2: Unapologetic.
0: <laughs> yeah, unapologetic. So I think that when I think of the feast, the high watermark, I think, for most of us in terms of the feast was when we rented a place that was actually called the Golden Nugget, Oh my which gosh. was a restaurant that was closed <laughs> down that had like a bunch of bungalows attached to it. It was like a Wild West, like it was attached <laughs> to a Wild West fucking <laughs> shitty ass theme park. It was all closed down. Mm-hmm. And so we rented all of the whole fucking thing. So we had this yep. weird theme park and like amphitheater and all this Our shit. own hotel.
2: Everyone yeah. had their own hotel room to sleep in. So that was
0: the tops. There was two stages. mm -hmm. One stage we had, you know, everyone brought like a bunch of gear and like mics and guitars and drums and stuff. So people were like jamming there. Mm -hmm. There was like a smaller stage. It was almost like a... Stripper pole kind of stage. Yeah,
2: (laughs) Uh, you could definitely say that.
0: It was kind of like uh, something. It was very small little stage, but it was perfect for karaoke. And we hired a karaoke guy. Sure, Tracy. Yep, Tracy, who insisted on doing a couple numbers that we
2: let him do, Mm -hmm. but we
0: shouldn't have. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, so it was definitely, uh, I think, the most memorable, the funnest of the feasts for me
2: the best yeah who could forget 7 30 a.m trivial pursuit on a stripper stage at the golden (laughs) nugget and then a fucking family of five walks in with their kids thinking that the restaurants open there's like 20 (laughs) stone dudes in their robes doing a lot of seedy stuff that a family wouldn't want to see (laughs) we're just like oh sorry dude this place is closed
0: we didn't know we should have locked the doors
2: sorry (laughs) but yeah travis it's little moments in images and memories that in a lot of ways they're best left untold like a lot of great stories are uh, in a man's life yeah but i can remember <laughs> one time. i mean i think it's in luddington on the west coast of michigan the feast takes place in a fucking blizzard unlike mm. anything michigan's ever seen and me and steve are tasked with going to an atm to get money so we can play poker and we go into this town and within minutes it's a whiteout we cannot see the hands in front of each other's faces The town's already empty. It's looking like fucking Silent Hill. Like we're both screaming each other's name and we're trying to find each other purely by our voice through horrific snow for like 45 minutes. And then when we finally see each other like emerge from this cloud of precipitation, we just laughed our asses off. We saw each other. We cannot believe our situation. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, the Luddington. we had two feasts there, both in the bitter cold. We actually ended up shifting from winter months for this event to the fall months, which I regret. I liked being holed up in some little house that we couldn't get out of and just being stuck together and playing video (laughs) games at all hours. But now we can kind of like spread out a little bit more in the daytime.
2: Hermitage feast. We went to Andrew Jackson's Hermitage, or at least it looked (laughs) just like a replica of it. Yeah, it was modeled after it. And we fucking played kickball until it got dark out. Now, that wouldn't be so bizarre to the layman who doesn't know us, but for the fact that like The overwhelming majority of us are not athletic at all. So, like, 18 fat guys that haven't played sports since, like, eighth grade gym, like, lumbering around trying to play kickball was A, hilarious, and B... A lot of fun that I didn't expect.
0: <laughs> yeah, everyone remembers that. fondly. I sat that one out. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm oh, good. I'm not. Man. I'm not here to fucking run around. That's not what I'm here for. I had a, I had a fine time otherwise. Oh, it was so fun. I'm sure you guys had a great time. I enjoyed eating and drinking <laughs> oh, and sitting down. <laughs> I don't. Know, wow. I don't go on vacation to run around. There you are. That's part of it, too, is that we have to try and remember these places by their different names. Mm -hmm. The names that we apply to them most of the time. Grandma's house was another feast that we once had because we were at some house that looked like a grandmother's place. And the power went out (laughs) uh, for a full 24 hours on the first night. The toilet stopped working. There's like 20 dudes in a house with no working toilets for like 24 hours. (laughs) And nothing to do but uh, play Scrabble. (laughs) That was actually a fun feast, though. You
2: know, last year we had this gigantic schoolhouse, this straight out of fucking Little House on the Prairie. Oh, my God. That could have fit like 100 people. And then in 2015, in the Irish Hills Feast, it's literally just a garage. And yet we have a great time in it.
0: (laughs) I've missed two feasts, I think. And that feast, I was finishing my master's thesis and I couldn't come that year. And then I was
2: sick a couple years ago. Didn't get the security deposit back that year, but.
0: <laughs> Which is maybe why we've gotten cleaner about it the last few years. Because I mean, early days of the feast, it would just be at people's houses, mostly our friend and co-host from Cinema 9, Mike Govier's house. And it seemed like half the goal was to trash the place and get as filthy and disgusting sure. as possible. I remember like someone dragged a bed into the kitchen, like a, just a mattress. And it was just like covered in garbage they slept with garbage as their blanket more or less great times yeah so i'm really looking forward to seeing you for the was it feast 22 23 24 what feast are we on do you know
2: something like that i think it's 21
0: whatever in the early 20s but yeah i'm looking forward to seeing you then my friend it'll be very soon
2: likewise let's do it
0: all right well thank you so much for coming on the show eric very much
2: appreciated you're my boy blue i love you i love you too catch us on cinnamon nine we do it every tuesday night usually. Okay, bye. Johnny Cash. Bye-bye. See ya.
1: Like a bird on a wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free
0: was nice. Wasn't that nice? Great choice, Eric, on picking that song to go out on. And I'm so lucky to have friends like Eric that will come on this show and share their passion and their knowledge of these important albums. And I'm really thankful for Johnny Cash, of course. American legend. American music royalty. Never forgotten. Not in this house. Hoping I didn't jinx any other American legends by naming off the troubadours who are still alive. Anyways, if you want to come on the show, you're very welcome, dear listener. I'm always looking for new guests, new friends to come on the show, or old, you know, we can already be working friends, to come on the show and talk about any album you want that came out from what I'm calling the long 93-94. We talked about Tom Petty in this episode. In 1994, he released the classic the beautiful Wildflowers, which I'm not going to play a clip from because I'm not asking anyone to come on and do that album on this show quite yet, because I have a good friend who is a huge Tom Petty fan, and I'm still holding out hope that he'll come on and talk about that album. But how about this song? I know what you're thinking. What the fuck is this? Uh, Southern Accents came out in 1985, Travis. Uh, How long are you thinking this long 93, 94 is? Well, I got news for you. In 1993, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers released a Greatest Hits compilation, and I will absolutely do Greatest Hits compilations on this show. Why not? If it came out in 93, 94, we'll talk about it whole bunch of classic tom petty songs on this compilation album maybe come on and talk about that with me if you're a petty fan or if you're a fan of any other music from the era 93 94 reach out to me at 9394 podcast at gmail.com i'm on facebook because i'm i don't know an honorary boomer i guess and um yeah if you could be so kind as to rate the show you know click the button that says five stars or whatever happens on you know your preferred podcast platform i'd appreciate it quite a bit that is it yes i will leave it right there you have yourselves a wonderful time with your lives 394 a music podcast with Travis Roy is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.